Kia ora church. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I just cut off the video just very rudely, didn't I? I was like, yes, we're done with the videos. Let's get to the Word of God. It's because I know, I know the 9 a.m. service. You don't have time for the videos. You want the Word of God, don't you? Yes. Good. <laughs> oh, that is the biggest clap we got in church. It was against the videos. <laughs> Hey, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It's living, it's active, it has the power to change us. And we love your word, God. We do say, Lord, that it's our desire to be people of the word. And so we pray, Lord God, that as your word goes forth, that your spirit would anoint it. And God, that you would teach us and transform us into a people who are after your own heart. God, we're not trying to shape ourselves into the image of what Christians should be. God, it's our earnest desire to be shaped after the desires of your heart, after the intention of your will, after the purpose of your word. And so we humble ourselves beneath the word of God in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. I think that the hardest job in the world is being a relieving teacher, a relief teacher. And I think we've actually got a few relief teachers in the house today. And I need to give you some compassion, some love, because I think being a relieving teacher is the hardest job in the world. And I, I can tell you why. There's something about when your normal teacher is not in the classroom, you become something other than you are. Even the shyest, most well-behaved little child becomes akin to a demon when a relief teacher steps in the room. And I know that's true because that was me, okay? I was the best behaved school kid you could possibly imagine. I wanted to do well. I wanted to obey my teacher. But the moment I saw a relief teacher coming, I don't know what came over me. I became like the answer back, clap back to, oh, I'm confused this morning. I started not doing my work. I started talking to my neighbor just because there are, you did the same. Don't lie this morning. You know, because there's something about how when your normal teacher is missing, right, you start to sort of not obey authority. And there's a principle here, isn't there? When your authority is tested, when the primary authority is absent from the room, like parents know this, you know that the obedience of your children is not tested and proven until you leave the room, right? Teachers know that the obedience of their kids is not tested until the teacher is out of the room. And that's a pretty good introduction for our parable today, because I'm going to preach today on the parable of the talents, very, very well-known portion of scripture which Jesus teaches from. And the whole context of this parable is Jesus is teaching his disciples how they should wait, how they should behave once he has ascended to heaven and they're waiting for him to come again. Now, I'm going to tell the story, um, not just read out a big block of text, because you better believe that I'm going to go through it verse by verse later in the message. And so I'm just going to tell you the story, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse. This is what happens in the parable of the talents. You can find it in Matthew 25 if you want to fact check me, and I suggest you always fact check the teacher, okay, so the preacher. So please make sure that you read along in Matthew 25. This is what happens. 
Uh, Jesus is telling a parable and he, the story is about the master of a house. And the master of the house is going on a great journey, a long journey. And he's the owner of a lot of property, a lot of resource. And before he goes, he entrusts his property into the hands of his servants. Actually, it's slaves. They're his slaves. And he entrusts his property into their hands. He distributes it according to the ability of the servant. And so one of them gets five talents and they go away and they make five more talents and return it to the master when he comes again. The next gets two talents and they go away and they make two more talents and return it to the master's hand when he comes again. And then the final servant, who's known as the wicked or the lazy servant, gets one talent, buries it, does nothing with it. And then when the master returns, this is his defense. He says, I believed you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow. And so I did nothing with that which I was given. And Jesus actually then takes the talent off him and gives it to the man who has now 10 talents. And Jesus himself sums up the teaching of the parable when he says this, but to everyone who has, more will we be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even the little that he has will be taken away. That's a hard teaching, isn't it? That's a hard saying. Now, before we go to the text, I want to give you some wider context of the place that this parable finds itself in, in the portion of Scripture. It's part of a wider body of teaching that Jesus gives from Matthew 24, which ends in Matthew 25. And if you ever read commentators' thoughts on it, they call it the Olivet Discourse. And the reason they call it that is it's a teaching that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. What might interest you is actually the book of Matthew is split. It's structured around five main teaching passages that Jesus gives. And the reason it is, is because that's to mimic the first five books of the Bible, which Jewish believe that Moses wrote. And so this structure is trying to show Jesus as a new and greater teacher like Moses. And this whole book block of teaching actually is in response to the question by one of the disciples. This is what it says in Matthew 24. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now that question is important because all of the teachings that Jesus gives subsequently to that question are in response to the question of the disciples. See, that's the framework that you need to understand this parable within. It's about Jesus' second coming, and it's about final judgment. That's what these parables, the framework of these parables are all about. And if you zoom into Matthew 25 in particular, what you're going to find is three parables. One is about the 10 virgins with the oil. One is the parable of the talents. And then one is about the final judgment and the separation of sheep and goats. And all of these parables are designed to tell you this is how the disciples of Jesus wait. This is how they live while they wait for Jesus' return and the final judgment. That's the context of these parables. And so now setting that context, let's go into the parable itself, the parable of the talents. It's probably important that I define a few key terms before we get into the body of it. Firstly, who is the master in this parable, the master of the house? Well, hopefully now I've given you the context, you'll be able to see that the master is akin to Jesus, right? 
He is the master of the house and we are awaiting his coming again. Who are the servants in the house? Well, again, it's important to say that that servant isn't like a laborer. This isn't someone who's working for their wages. The Greek word servant is again often translated slave and the slaves or servants here are the disciples of Jesus. Now, don't let that trip you up because there's a very important reason why he calls us servants and not sons in this context. He's using that to reveal something, okay? So don't let it trip you up. The last thing that it's important to define is what is a talent? What is a talent? Well, a talent in this context is a unit of money. It's a unit of money. And that's why in some other translations, you're going to see it translated gold bags. Because it's not just a little bit of money, it's a lot of money. A talent is the equivalent of 20 years of wages. Of 20 years of, listen, the master of the property wasn't messing around when he left this in the servant's hand. He's not leaving them a little. He's leaving them a significant deposit of that which is his. A significant down payment, one might even say, of the property or the kingdom that is to come. But I'm getting ahead of myself, Haley. Calm down. Good Lord. Good Lord. Now, many commentators have tried to kind of make uh, applications of what a talent could be in our lives. Like, what would the equivalent of a talent be in our lives? And some people have taken that word talent and used it to mean talents, you know, in our usage. You know, because they've been like, oh, that like skips over pretty easy, like a talent and a talent, you know. You see my dance moves? Woo! (laughs) You loved it. No, you hated it. Mike Pierce is like, oh my gosh. So some have used that gifts or talents. Other people have taken it just strictly with the monetary equivalent that it's talking about our money or our resource. Others have talked about it in terms of the gifts of the Spirit or the down payment of the Holy Spirit and moving in the gifts of Spirit. And I would like to just add my voice to the collection and suggest to you that that to define the resource or the talent as just one of those things is too narrow. And the reason I think that is actually something that Jesus said. When he begins telling these parables, he says this in verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And then again in verse 14, when he starts the parable of the talents, he referenced this where he says, for it will be like. What that means is the the, the parables are earthly pictures which are trying to describe heavenly realities. They are earthly pictures which are trying to reveal heavenly truths. Now, on earth, property and resource might be the things that on earth we use to extend property. But how many people know that the kingdom of God has far more resource than things as simple as property and money? In fact, the currency of the kingdom is far more than just monetary or tangible things. The currency of the kingdom can be peace. It can be wisdom. It can be encouragement. It can be compassion. It can be strength. Yes, it can be the gifts of the Spirit. Yes, it can be money. Yes, it can be talents, all of those things. But to boil it down to that is too small. Because you better believe that the master of the house will use anything in his kingdom to see his kingdom on earth extended. And so our application for what is a talent, therefore, is very simply this. A talent is anything that the master has given you 
that would help you extend his kingdom. It's anything, anything that he has given you that's going to help you extend his kingdom. So, yep, it's your gifts and talents. Yep, it's the gifts of the Spirit. But it's also your wisdom. It's also your leadership. It's also your words. It's also your time. Come on, sometimes it's your vehicle when you've got to go pick that person up. Sometimes it's your home when you've got to show some hospitality. It's anything, anything that the master has placed in your hand that you could use to extend his kingdom. Now let's go back to, let's go to the text. Matthew 24 verse 14. This is how it starts. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now that in itself in 2023 is a strange thought. Because why would a master entrust their property into the hands of a slave and then go away? And in fact, it was actually standard practice in the ancient world that slaves were often entrusted with this sort of responsibility while the master was out of town. And like I said earlier, it's crucially important that what Jesus is doing here is using slaves and servants and not laborers. And the reason laborers or sons, because obviously the disciples are often seen as sons elsewhere in the New Testament. But the reason that Jesus is using slaves here is because he wants to make it very, very clear that this parable is about stewardship not ownership. It's about stewardship and not ownership. In other words, what the master entrusts to the servants is not theirs. See, if it was a laborer or if it was a son, it would be very, very easy for us to think, oh, they're working for something that they have or they're working with something that they own. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 these are servants or slaves. And so what is entrusted to them doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the master. This parable is about how you and I steward that which belongs to Jesus. The servant does not own the talent. And hear me, they also don't own the growth. They don't own the gift, and they don't own the fruit of the gift. Both the gift and the fruit belong to the master. Now, this is a challenging thought. Challenging thought. Because there is a huge difference between an ownership mindset and a stewardship mindset. A stewardship mindset tells me that anything I have in my possession that could be used to extend the master's kingdom comes from the master's hand. Money, from the master's hand. My gifts, from the master's hand. My car, from the master's hand. The breath in my lungs, from the master's hand. My intelligence, from the master's hand. My compassion, you better believe it came from the master's hand. The gifts of the Spirit from the master's hand. None of these things belong to me. I steward them for the extension of his kingdom. Now, I want you to see something. If stewardship builds the master's kingdom, ownership builds mine. 
if stewardship builds the master's kingdom, ownership builds mine. Friend, if you're in this place and you are trying to own and hold on to that which the master has entrusted to you, I can guarantee that it's not his kingdom you're building. The kingdom that you're going to be building is your own. And so the first question you need to ask yourself is, do I have an ownership mindset or a stewardship mindset? Do I have an ownership mindset or a stewardship mindset? All right, Matthew 25, verse 15, next verse. This is what it says. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each, here it is, according to his ability. Then he went away. This text says that the master distributed the talents among the servants according to their ability. The word ability is the Greek dunamis, interestingly, which is what we preached on a number of weeks ago, which can mean power and mighty works. It can also talk about character and virtue. But the point of this is very simply that the master distributed it according to the character of the servants and their ability to steward what he'd given. Now, it's very interesting to see this acknowledgement in Scripture because we understand this is a reality of the life that we live. Each of us have different giftings. Each of us have different capacities. We have been blessed, come on, let's be plain, with different amounts of talents. And I want to sit here for a while because I think the point of this acknowledgement is not so that we would go into comparison mode. Why does that person have more resource? Why does that person have more ability? Why does that person have more opportunity? Come on, somebody. Oh, I want to stay there, but no, I'm not going to. Why does this person move in the gifts of the Spirit more? And to read that onto the text is to miss the point of the text completely. And there's a real danger for the people of God here. I read some commentators who actually said that they think that the reason that the wicked servant had an incorrect view of the father was because he compared the one he had with the five someone else had. Let me tell you the danger of comparison. What you're corrupting is not your view of each other. What you're corrupting is your view of God. What you're corrupting is your view of God. And the point of this text is very much not how much they're given. It's not the ability of the servant. The point is not the size of the gift. The point isn't even about the size of the increase. The point is that the disciples of Jesus do something with what they're given, no matter how big or how small. See, they might get different of sizes of gifts, but they get the same opportunity. And it's not the size of the gift they're being tested on. It's whether or not they'll do something with the opportunity that they are given. You see, actually, this parable is not even about talents or gifts. It's actually about character. It's asking us, as the people of God, will we do something with what we've been given? And to see proof of this, look no further than the three servants. The first servant is given five talents, he grows five more. The second is given two talents, he grows two more. How many people know that the servant with five, his increase was more than the servant who just had two? And when they come to the master, the commendation the master gives them is exactly the same. Like word for word, 
Jesus cut pastes himself in verse 21 and 23 when he says this, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice that he commends character, everyone. Not fruit. He commends character. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, it's not about the size of the text. Someone needs to hear this today because you've been sitting on the fence because you haven't been feeling enough. It's not about the size of the talent. It's not even about the size of the growth. This story is actually about the character of the servant. It's about whether or not we as servants and disciples of the master will put into work that which the master has given for the extension of the master's kingdom. It's not about how gifted you are. It's not about how much money you have. It's not about how intelligent you are. It's not even about how effective you are at moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Everything, everything in our hands comes from the hand of the Master. You can't claim it. We can't take responsibility of it. All we do is put it to work for the extension of the Master's kingdom. Finally, the time comes for the last servant to come forward and Listen, if you thought this message was real, it's about to get so much more real, okay? So buckle your seatbelts, all right? I just saw I've got three minutes. It's not going to be three minutes. <laughs> Matthew 25, verse 24 to 27. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward. Listen to this. This is fascinating what he says. This is his defense for why he hasn't done anything. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to invested my money with bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. It's very important that in that text, you noticed the question mark at the end of this sentence from the master. You wicked and slothful servant, here it is, you knew that I reap when I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. That's got a question mark at the end of that sentence, which is actually quite important. The servant comes forward and says that the reason that he's given nothing is because he believes that his master is a hard man. Now, you need to understand that is not an accurate description of the master. That word hard is never used, actually, of the character and nature of Jesus and the character and nature of God. The reason that the master repeats that is to actually implicate the servant by his own words. And you need to understand that Jesus actually uses this technique quite often when he's engaging with people. Instead of getting defensive and proclaiming who he is, he often uses logic to implicate the person who's making the accusation with their own words. And so essentially what he's saying, he's saying, is this what you really think? Like, is this what you really think? He's like, even if this is what you think of me, what you did was less than the minimum. That's what he's saying. It was still the laziest of all options that were available to you. 
But the inclusion of this speech by the wicked servant is actually an incredible illustration for us. And this is where I want you to lean in. It shows us that it was the servant's incorrect view of the master, which resulted in his wickedness and laziness, which then resulted in his lack of fruitfulness. You need to understand that what you know about God will always lead into who you are, and who you are becomes what you do. Know, be, do. How you view God will inform who you are, and you do who you are. See, the problem with the wicked servant actually wasn't that he did nothing. It was that he had a broken view of the master. He had an incorrect view of the master. And this is where we need to let this challenge us. Because if you're in this place and you've been saying, listen, I've got an ownership mindset, or if you're here and you're saying, I haven't been using what I've been given to, to extend the kingdom of the master. Friend, I'm not here to beat up what you do. I'm here to get you to push back into what you know about God. See, the question you actually need to be asking yourselves, if that's you, is, what is my view of the master? What is my view of the master? Because one of the things that I noticed about this text is that it never gives a reason why, does it? It never explains why the servants should be working to extend the kingdom of the master. And the reason that I think it doesn't give a why is because when you truly know the master, You don't need to be given a why. Yeah. The master becomes our why. When I have a correct view of the master, you don't need to tell me to extend his kingdom of peace. I'm desperate to. When you really know the master, you don't need to tell me to extend his kingdom of love. I'm desperate to. When you really know the master, you don't need to tell me to extend his kingdom of compassion. I'm desperate to. Because the master is the why. And if you're struggling with your why, all you need to do is take another look at the master. If the band would like to come and join me. All right, I am going to finish now. Matthew 25, verse 28 to 30. This is how it ends. So take the talent from him and give it to him. This is the master speaking. Give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant, it says, into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. While the wicked servant loses the little he is given, note that the first servant who was given five and made five has kept all the ten and now is given more. Jesus himself sums up the teaching of the parable when he says to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not even the little he has will be taken away. And what that means is simple. When I am faithful with the little I have here on earth, when I'm faithful to build his kingdom, then I will reap an abundance and be set over much when my master comes again. 
See, I don't just work for his kingdom. I share in its glory. What it means is that what we do here echoes in eternity. It's not wasted. It's not wasted. It's not wasted. Come on, someone needs to hear that today. It is not wasted. You have been laboring and sowing and sowing, and I'm here to tell you today, it is not wasted. It might not be seen, but it's not wasted. It might not be noticed, but it is not wasted. You will share in the glory of your master when he comes again. But the flip side of this is also true. Look again at what happens to the final servant. He's cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we know that this is a picture of eternity. The servant does not make it to the paradise of eternity with the master. Now, I want to explain this for a second. He doesn't make it there. He's not cast out as a punishment for not doing something with what he's given. That's not what this text is saying. He's not been cast out because of his decision to do nothing. He's cast out because of what his decision revealed. It revealed that his relationship with the master was broken. It was broken. And so what that means for us, and this is where it gets challenging, is that to do something with what you're given is a mark of a true disciple. True disciples of the master don't do nothing. True disciples of the master do something with what they're entrusted in order to extend his kingdom. And friend, if you're in this place and you've been on the bench, if you've been delegating the work of the ministry to the people that you see feel have more resource or more talents, if you've been endeavoring under an ownership mindset instead of a stewardship mindset, if you're in this place and you feel like you have an incorrect view of the master, friend, now is your opportunity to go back to the basics of what it means to follow the master. Because a true mark of discipleship is not just that the ones and twos of the church of Jesus would do the work. The true mark of a discipled church is that we would all do something with what we've been entrusted in order to extend the kingdom of the master. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I pray, make us and form us not into a crowd, not just into a congregation, but make us true and proper disciples of Jesus. Lord, we don't come to have our ears tickled. We don't come to watch people do the work of the ministry. We don't come because we just like the idea of Jesus on Sundays. No, we're here because we want to be true disciples. And so I pray in the name of Jesus that everyone in this place today would be commissioned by divine mandate to use that which they've been entrusted to extend your kingdom of peace, your kingdom of hope, your kingdom, our Father in heaven. Honored be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make us agents of the kingdom of God to the glory of the master.
as we go into all the world and make disciples, oh Lord, we will share in your glory when our master comes again to the glory of the name of Jesus. With every eye closed and every head bowed, we never like to finish our service without giving people an opportunity to know Jesus. And so if you're in this place and maybe, maybe you made a commitment once, but you walked away and you feel the presence of God calling you back, or maybe you've never made a decision for Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity to right now. If that's you, I'm going to count to three. And if you're saying, today is my day, I need to return to the Lord, raise your hand. This is, I'm going to pray Then you raise your hand. One, God loves you. Two, he's speaking to you right now. Three, if that's you, raise your hand. Thank you. God bless you. I see that hand. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. I see that hand. Awesome. Thank you, Lord. Church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I turn from sin. I follow you. Thanks to you, I'm free. In Jesus' name, amen.